In 2024, the Triathlon Hour is brought to you by The Feed. Thefeed.com is a website that has all of the world's best training and race day nutritional products in one place. The Feed's goal is to help you experiment with and ultimately find what nutritional products work best for you to get the most out of your performance in training and racing. They have almost 200 brands in stock, so you can buy as much from one brand as you want or as little as one gel from a brand. And I really do think that's the big benefit is you can try one thing from every brand and that way you'll find exactly what it is that you love and works for you. And having it all at one place at thefeed.com makes it convenient to do so. There's no more having to go to multiple websites and pay for shipping on them all and wait for them to come on different days or drive around to multiple shops. You can just get everything you need at thefeed.com and have it all shipped to your front door together so it arrives at the same time. So we're 19 days out from T100 Miami, the first T100 race of the year slash ever technically, I guess. Uh, and we're luckily, lucky enough to be joined by the only three-time PTO Open champion and PTO ranked number two in the world, Ashley Gentle. Ash, uh, let's start here. Is Miami where you're going to be starting your T100 campaign this year? Uh, no, it's not actually. Um, I'll be starting my year at T100 Singapore. So yeah, that's where you'll see me. Uh, in 2024 for the first race of the year. So why the decision to race Singapore as your first race of the year and not start at the first race in Miami? Um, I guess when I went on my break after Noosa Try, which was uh, first week in November, um, I guess in my mind I had the, the thought process that, you know, the first race would be in April. And, yeah, then when it was announced that it would be actually um, in Miami in March, you know, I just thought that I would just stick to my original plan, um, I guess, especially as an Australian being living down here. Um, yeah, the race in Miami is probably the most, like, most difficult and, and far race for us to get to in the whole year and obviously it being in March. Um, yeah, a big trip there and back, I think, would derail a, a good preparation uh, for Singapore and, yeah, just keeping in mind that it's a super, super long year. So I'm just trying to make the right decisions um, early and, yeah, I'm, I'll be doing most of the other T100 races. So, um, yeah, just thinking about the year as a whole really. So that's my next question. Barring injury or illness or any anything unforeseen, do you plan to do the next seven after uh, Miami? Yeah, so I'm looking at it um, likely – potentially maybe not doing the one um, in America in October uh, just because like looking at the way the the schedule's kind of planned it's the one that is maybe a little bit um, yeah sits a bit out of yet yeah, what makes sense for me in terms of yeah traveling and heading back to Australia before like committing to those ones in the Middle East um, but yeah to be honest I'm pretty fluid about it though because you obviously have to make sure that you're performing at these big, big races too. And, you know, if something goes terribly wrong in a, a couple of them and I want to make sure I have, you know, um, 
really good scores on the board to count for that overall title at the end. You know, maybe my cha- my plans will change. Can you sort of take us back a little bit and can we go and talk about the last three months? Because you sort of talked about then how originally uh, when you first took your break, you were under the impression the first race was going to be in April. It ends up being in March and you, you didn't get told that until a little bit too late. Being the most winning PTO athlete of all time and and the PTO ranked number two and someone that they the PTO really um, care about and and are pushing to be a big star in the sport, were you more informed than everyone else along the way over the past few months? Um, I don't think so. I think that, um, yeah, I just got information um, the same time as everyone else um but maybe a bit later maybe people were on the the gossip train and found out bits of information before I did that um down here just minding my own business maybe I was a little bit delayed in in some regards but no I think all the official um communications came through to everyone at the same time as far as I'm aware um I'm not aware of anyone knowing anything before me but um yeah, that might not be right. I'm not sure. Can you take me inside the first time over the past few months when you had a conversation about signing a contract with the PTO um, and who the conversation was with? Yeah, I guess we just got uh, sent through, um, yeah, our contracts um, via email and uh, Josh Amberger, who's obviously as uh, a triathlete himself and my husband, but he's also my manager. So he takes care of all of that stuff for me. So he was the one, to be honest, that was um, in communications with the PTO and uh, Dylan was the one to send that through. So, yeah, uh, obviously I'm I'm well aware of the contract, but Josh definitely knows the ins and outs of it just because he's the one that um, looks through it all and, and makes sure, um, yeah, obviously – um, a professional I know what I'm signing and yeah I guess um, yeah it was just nice to see that there was yeah a lot of lot of opportunities to race this year and um, just trying to race the best women all year long which is yeah an exciting concept and I guess not too different to what I came you know I grew up doing on the World Series circuit it's I guess quite similar in um, the amount of races and a of course, a world title at the end too. And was it really simple for you when you got the contract emailed to you, you were just straight away like, yep, let's sign it? Or was there more back and forth between you and the PTO than that? Um, there wasn't too much back and forth. Obviously, uh, Josh, he is really good at what he does, to be completely honest. He's got a pretty uh, keen eye on all the different um things throughout the contract. And yeah, there was just maybe one or two things where we just wanted just more clarification than anything and yeah that was really easily communicated and um it was pretty easy for me I guess to sign that contract in the sense that um yeah I've been wanting to to race these races and yeah just making sure I was yeah um getting obviously the best deal for me but obviously making sure I was well aware of my commitment as well as an athlete um by signing and what those commitments are throughout the year. We talked to Sam on the podcast and he said that he is going to make what each individual athlete's contract is public. And then Fred Funk came on the podcast um, last week and 
disclosed that he's getting seventy thousand US dollars for for the season um, with the you know the marketing side of the contract. A, will you tell us what you get as the number two ranked triathlete uh, on the PTO rankings? And B, do you like the potential for it to be public or do you wish that it was private? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that it's not it's not really something that uh, I've even thought about, to be honest. I probably won't say right now, like, what it is. It caught me off guard a little bit. But, like, <laughs> yeah, if it came out publicly and and Sam wanted to share that, like, I don't really care anyway, I guess. Um, yeah, like I don't even want to say because maybe I signed to say that I, I shouldn't be sharing at the moment what I signed for. So I, I would actually want to look over my contract first before saying what I did sign for, to be honest. So, um, but yeah, I, I think it's pretty, um, yeah, straightforward the the way that it went down through the athletes depending on their ranking. But yeah, of course, all the athletes know but um, yeah, if like I said, if the PTO want to share that or T100 want to share that, um, I guess that's up to them. It's not my decision, really. Fred, Fred didn't really think about it too much. He could be in a bit of legal trouble there. You're right. He wouldn't. <laughs> have, it wouldn't have even crossed his mind that he might not be allowed to say it. I reckon. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. It's each their own. Everyone's. Um, it kind of depends who you are too. Like, you know, if you know culturally or just growing up maybe if you just didn't talk about money it's like something that is not really discussed much you might be more shy to kind of share those kind of things but um yeah I'm more thinking uh making sure I'm not breaking breaking any sort of uh contract obligation by sharing what I shouldn't um moving on are you so there's seven races and you you're thinking maybe you might not race Las Vegas in October so maybe you might do six um are they the only races you'll do all year? I know that every other year you've still been doing some other races, but will you be a 100% PTO exclusive athlete in 2024? Potentially, yes. Um, I think I look at those races and I just see that, um, you know, they're not just races, they're races where I'm yeah racing the absolute best girls in the world and that I'm well aware of how much that takes out of you. And um you know, even going back to the the World Series, I wouldn't do much outside of that as well because I know that um, when you are lining up in those types of races that you've really got to commit to them and it's kind of hard to sometimes commit to much more when you've got to fit in, you know, racing those races and also the quality of training that you need to keep doing to stay at the very best level. Um, You know, I'll probably still look at, I qualified for um, 70.3 Worlds last year in Langkawi. So I guess um, I'll see how I'm feeling for that. That's mid-December and it's in New Zealand. So obviously as an Aussie, it's like, well, that would be really amazing, Um, especially because I qualified for Taupo like four years ago when it was supposed to be there and um, it's only finally happening this year, four years later. So yeah, that'll be interesting uh, to see if I can um, do that. But I think that'll be more see how I'm going. There's a lot of like huge races, obviously, in November with the two races in the Middle East. And of course, one of them being the grand final for T100. So that's obviously something to consider. And I always want to do Noosa Try as well, which is the start of November. And yeah, my coach might have something to say about that. But yeah, I always love doing that if I can. 
if you were to like, how how much does the seventy point three World Championships call out to you? Like, is it important at all to you the title itself? Take out the location, like obviously being close to home for you this year. Do you care if you end your career and you like are never a seventy point three World Champion? Is it or or is it like secretly a big deal to you and you would one day like to be able to call yourself an Ironman seventy point three World Champion? Yeah, I guess there's context around that because um, maybe if you asked me a few years ago, I would have said 100%. Like, of course, that's what I would be aiming for. But now the the T100 is here. And of course, especially this year with a world title on the line, I guess it changes things a little bit. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to know how I'll feel when I, when I finally re- retire. And maybe if I haven't um achieve some of those things I'll kick myself but you know you never really know that until it happens but yeah I think for me definitely the T100 is is my focus and I really enjoy the distance and the series and um knowing that I'm going to be racing um yeah such a high quality of field and in those places with the 20 meter draft rule as well with race ranger like that's what really motivates and excites me so that's just kind of what I'm focusing on and I guess I'll take it year by year to see how yeah how things go and of of course the landscape of triathlon you know what gets me out of bed every day that's what I'll be I'll be aiming for and you are obviously the single most successful PTO athlete of all time you've won three of them you've come second at another two but there is some talk that you do hear that that's because this distance suits you and that 70.3 distance doesn't suit you as much, which I've always sort of looked at as a bit stupid to insert my own opinion, but I wanted to get your take on that. Do you do you think that the PTO distance, there's some secret about that you know, extra little bit on the swim and the, the 10K off the bike and the 3K off the run? Does that make that distance just perfect for you or do you think that if you were going and, and, you know, putting all your eggs in the Ironman 70.3 basket, that you would be just as good at that? Yeah, it's also a super interesting question. And, yeah, I did hear a little bit of commentary about that over the last couple of years. And, um, yeah, I've just (laughs) chosen to ignore it. But that's fine. Everyone's um, entitled to their opinion, I guess. But I think it's just the nature of um, what I have chosen um, to focus on in the last two years. I think, yeah, the, the distance is is so, so similar. It's kind of hard to really think that it makes a huge amount of difference. Although in saying that, I think there's something about the 100K distance, you kind of feel like you can push that just extra little bit. Um, but also that's just my bias because all the 100K races that I've done have been my A races and yeah, potentially there has some, there's been some where, um, yeah, they're just not my hundred percent focus. So it's, you know, of course, when you line up for a race, people will judge you and that's a hundred percent. Okay. That's what you do as an athlete. And that's just what happens. But, um, yeah, I think that if it was the same series and it was, you know, 70.3 diff- distance, I'd like to think that I would still be, uh, still hugely competitive um, but yeah I guess it's just that 100k is what I've been focused on and um, yeah that's where my success has come. I want to talk about something that you've mentioned a few times which is the the roster of women that you're going to be facing this year and you're going to be facing the world's best and 
uh, like I've talked to you a few times now and know that that's something that's really important to you and excites you and you've you've uh, mentioned it already a couple of times. The field that the PTO have put together for the T100 women's roster, could you maybe just comment your thoughts on it a little bit? Yeah, I guess um, when I saw the roster, like I wasn't really surprised, especially like for the women. I definitely had a feeling that all of the women that were top ranked were going to accept their spot on on the tour. I kind of just, yeah, had. I think it's because a lot of the women um, in middle distance racing, there's a lot of us that are just doing middle distance racing. So obviously there's a huge cohort of us that it's the distance we do anyway. So it's a, you know, easy to accept that and, and want to be part of it. But then I kind of had this feeling, especially after talking to Annie Haug um, and a couple of other women that, you know, do Ironman too and, and are hugely successful in that. I just kind of had a feeling that, They've been enjoying doing the shorter distance and wanted to really have a crack at the 100K distance the whole year. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that, you know, everyone said yes and, yeah, the top 16 ranked women are there, which is, yeah, pretty incredible and super exciting, obviously, for for the T100 series. Um, yeah, cause I think that the most exciting thing is that you look at every single woman on the list and they bring something huge. Like, you know, obviously there's all, all most of us are very well-rounded athletes, but then everyone's got this like lethal weapon that you kind of look at and be like, wow, that, that'll bring something to the race. It's kind of going to be, yeah, an interesting one to follow all year. I was having a conversation with another one of the women who's racing who it was off the record, so I won't say their name, but they they said something that was interesting. They said that they knew all of the women were going to sign because the women don't have quite the same level of sponsorship deals that the men have. So it's like for, for a female who's ranked in the top 20 in long course triathlon right now, it's a no-brainer that you take the PTO contract because of the money because – in her words, we're not being paid as much by sponsors as some of the men, so you don't have the freedom to be able to say no. You're the the second ranked, you know, uh, female in the world. Is there any truth to that? Um, potentially, yeah. I guess, um, you know, if that obviously we don't, I don't know who that woman is, but um, you know, she's obviously speaking from experience, and she obviously has some knowledge of, um, you know, what she's being paid uh, sponsor-wise and potentially what some of the men are being paid. Um, it's a hard one because obviously it's one of those things where it's just some people, you know, you have to make guesstimates unless someone actually comes and says, you know, I'm getting paid X from this company. Um, you know, a lot of it is, I guess, speculation, but I guess traditionally maybe that's the thought that, yeah, some of the men um, – had better sponsorship than women but I definitely think that um the women have proven that we are very entertaining and I think that a lot of people get really excited by our racing so I definitely hope that that's definitely changing because I think we offer something that's just as exciting as the men's racing and yeah we obviously do the same distance and go through the same amount of pain and uh yeah I'd like to think that you know um, the the top level women and d down to you know the t 
ranked 20 and and obviously athletes that are trying to build up too can definitely have opportunities um, from sponsors to help, I guess, um, fund the sport that they're, they're trying to, yeah, you know, have a real crack in. You've all heard me rave about Pillar Performance's triple magnesium powder for over a year now, but my second favorite product from Pillar has to be their Ultra Immune C. We all know the key to triathlon training is consistency, and nothing wrecks your consistency more than getting sick every five to six weeks. I've been using Pillar's Ultra Immune C drink for a while now, and I can honestly say that I feel like I've been getting sick a lot less. Like, I haven't had those periods of four, five, six days where I can't do anything and can't leave the house and can't train because I've got a cold or another, you know, chest infection. It, it honestly just hasn't been happening. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say that's because of Ultra Immune C, but I feel like it is. Um, Ultra Immune C from Pillar Performance not only contains vitamin C, which has well-known immunity benefits, but it also contains zinc and vitamin D. And this is one of the reasons I started taking it in June last year at the start of um, the, the Southern Hemisphere's winter and haven't stopped since. So if you're slogging it out through the winter, particularly if you're in America or Europe now where it is winter and you're spending way too much time inside and you're doing all your training inside, then grab yourself some Pillar Ultra Immune C. It doesn't just have vitamin C. It has zinc. It has vitamin D, all things that are going to benefit your immune system. Uh, and if you do want to grab that or anything from Pillar Performance, then make sure you use the discount code TTH15 for 15% off your first order. So this might be, be a little bit too personal, but... If you don't know how much everyone else is making from sponsors, when an, when a sponsor approaches you to work with you, how do you have any idea what to like what amount to say this is what I I need to be able to work with you? Yeah, I guess um well yeah, in saying that, I guess we've had a lot of experience just through being in the sport for 15 years, of course, um contractually a lot of the time you can't say what your you know, monetary value is that you've just signed for. But of course, there's people that have been and gone from the sport that are more than happy to tell you what what they think as well. So drawing on, I guess, um, chats from different athletes over a different, you know, over different generations. Um, yeah, Josh has a lot of, I guess, people who he speaks to and and he knows, I guess, quite a lot of people in the industry. So I feel like he has a fair idea of what's kind of fair and what's not. And then I guess it's also up to you as an individual athlete. Um, you're a professional and you've got to think, okay, I'm going to put this um, logo on my suit. What do I think I'm worth? And I know that's really hard for some athletes. It's 100% hard for me, but that's why I have people around me helping me where you do have to accept that you know, money isn't everything, but you are a professional and you have to have a worth on yourself. And if you think um, you're worth more than what's being offered, you have to have hard conversations and sometimes um, you have to say no. And sometimes even when things aren't going too well uh, and the money would be helpful, sometimes you have to say no if you think that, you know, I can achieve more and I think I'll be worth more in the future. And yeah, those are all things you've kind of got to consider as an athlete that you don't think you're going to have to consider when you're um, when you join the sport as a teenager. And coming back to the the roster of women that you're going to be racing across the T100 series, it's being talked up. Like we know that Sam Renouf, every time he talks, will, will bring up that it's a season long narrative of the best racing the best, and that's that's like a calling card of the PTO. But 
we get into race one and and you're not racing and we we've seen obviously that um 11 athletes uh, are not going to be racing miami and we do expect that to happen at a fair few of the races how how many races do you actually think that you'll race each of the other best females in the world like annie haug and taylor nib and lucy charles barclay for example yeah well i guess when you look at let's take the olympians out of it for now because they're on a separate kind of deal i believe um, if you look at the middle distance athletes that signed a regular contract, I guess some athletes might do all of them. I guess it's quite a lot of races to do if you do all of them, but that's, you know, personal choice, of course. But I think uh, it's impossible to avoid uh, the athletes. I guess if if you choose not to do two of them, which you can, you still have you know, all these other ones. And even if the, say, Annie chooses two different ones to me, you know, not to do, we'll still 100% be up against each other at another two, obviously, plus the grand final. Um, you need to put a, a spreadsheet out and have a look at the, get some statisticians on it. I'm not, I'm not good at thinking this um, just on the top of my head, but I think it's impossible to avoid certain battles. Um but, of course, with the amount of Olympians that they did sign, I actually thought that they had to do four plus the grand final, but I actually realised that it's only three. So, yeah, potentially if they focus on the Olympics and not race until the latter part of the year, you might not see them and, you know, they'll be relying on wild cards a lot more for the Olympians that they signed. Yeah, but for the rest of us, um, yeah, especially, say, if Lucy doesn't race Miami, um, yeah, there's obviously more chance of me and her being at every single other race, racing each other, um, just for one example, of course. And would we be able to talk about a few of the women specifically? We know that you've had the battles with Taylor Nib and Annie Haug and even to a degree, Lucy Charles Barclay. Do you think that you four, so yourself included in that, do you think that you're the big four that uh, a sort of if everyone's at the races will be competing for the wins and, and is that how you see it as well or do you think that there's other people in that top bracket? Yeah, I guess um, it's easy just to kind of classify people into those categories when, you know, that's just what's happened. Um, we've been the ones that have been at the front of the race or podium. So I guess um, that's just everyone's natural kind of instinct to think that. But I honestly think that depends depends on the way that the um, races kind of pan out because, you know, you even look at someone like Emma Pallant-Brown or Tamara Jewett, um, you know, they're such great runners and I guess they haven't had opportunity to really maybe showcase that at some of the races the way that they've kind of panned out so people wouldn't and shouldn't be surprised if there's depending on the race dynamics um certain people that haven't been on the podium before do come through and have some great podium performances if you had to pick one person outside of those four i just mentioned who you think is the best chance to win one of the women's races who would you say out of the whole field? Except for yourself, Annie Haug, Taylor Nib, and Lucy Charles Barclay. Oh, goodness. That is really difficult. Um, okay. And for the win? For the win, yep. 
have we got a race race course that I have to choose from or are we going to just go? You can make the rules. Race? You can pick it. It could be Singapore where it's a bit hillier and hotter. It could be mm, there's a few courses that haven't come out. It could be London that's probably not going to be that, you know, hilly, not that hard. You make oh, the rules. Uh, I'll say Emma Pallant Brown. In a run battle, like coming off a group in the bike or? Yeah, I'll say that. I'm not sure which race. I just for some reason her, her name's just sticking out to me. So I'll I'll back her for for a win. There you go. I like it. I like the I just fully expected you not to say anyone and I had something prepared for if you didn't say anyone, but nothing prepared prepared for if you did. I like Emma. You know, she's she's the she's hosting a podcast series I'm doing now because I also think that she's a, a real threat to win a race. Same with Imogen Simmons, um, who who is another yep. co-host, like that's that's why I asked them mainly to come on the podcast because I thought they're two people outside of the people who everyone's talking about, who I reckon could go close to winning one and like surprising people. And that's the thing. I think that's the great thing about you know the commitment to show more of the racing as well because um, even as someone who's been at the front of the races like myself maybe apart from uh, a couple of years ago in Dallas everyone was like where's where's she come from <laughs> but you are at the front of the race right and you are the cameras are on you um, because the, you're at the front and maybe because of your past performances but I think it also would be great to show more of the racing just as a whole because um, you know like these women are there's battles throughout the whole race and I think um, to show, yeah, a bigger perspective of what's happening. And obviously, yeah, like you said, Imogen, she's like a phenomenal cyclist, right? So to be able to get cameras on, you know, certain different people um, throughout the race will give good context um, even then for like the winners. Be like, oh, gosh, you know, they were so quick or they did this time. Um, and it, it gives better, I guess, understanding of how the whole race panned out. And I think that's good for the whole the racing as a whole and for all the women do you ever have conversations with the pto where they ask for your opinion opinions on things like this and you say well i think we need more cameras on the field following you know the back of the race the middle of the race and the front of the race or or even other ideas you might have or do they just not ask you at all um i remember having a conversation um at the start of last year um with a couple of different people in the staff and I think that's kind of nice I'm not sure how much I um, offered but you know it is nice to be able to feel like you can contribute um, as an athlete and um, feel like you are being heard so you know I haven't had too many conversations of late but of course you know if there was an ever an opportunity for me to you know, voice my opinion, um, I would be absolutely willing to do that because I think that, yeah, it is important to have athletes' perspective on the races and um, luckily after all the races we all get a uh, questionnaire where we can fill out, um, you know, our experience of the race and we can actually provide feedback. And, yeah, as an athlete to be able to have, you know, everyone that raced have that opportunity um, to be able to provide that you know, experience is pretty incredible. And there's not many races or opportunities where you can do that. So that's been a really good um, thing from the PTO post-race. Can I get your thoughts on uh, just a few topics that people have been talking about? We, we touched on it, the, on it at the start of the conversation, but 
Did you feel like and were you frustrated by the amount of time that it took the PTO to get everything in order or were you just happy that it's a thing? <laughs> yeah, of course. Like um, it was obviously tough for them. I feel like I was someone who was I was pretty unfazed in one sense because I'm like, okay, I just I got to get back. I've got to get back some fitness. I'm not even thinking about racing right now. But, of course, um, I definitely wanted to know where I would be racing and, and what the season would definitely look like. But I also, I guess, realised that they would tell us if they could and obviously, um, you know, you know, being able to secure these sites were probably a little bit harder than um, maybe they first envisioned and there was a few things that kind of held them up. So it's one of those hard ones where you you can't, you, you want to know obviously a lot more in advance and I think that they will definitely try and do that for next year. Um, but, yeah, it's something where they're probably always learning and, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, now this eight eight race season is up and running this year it'll make it easier you know to secure new sites um or the same destinations for next year and already be thinking about you know what's next for 2025 because um i can't imagine it's easy you know approaching these cities um needing the funding to to host uh the events that um yeah they're trying to host this next one's like a it's like a three-part question of the same question but We've got eight races this this year in 2024. Sam Renouf's come out and said that he thinks 10 might be the, the right amount eventually, whether it's 2025 or 2026 or somewhere down the, down the line. What do you think? Do you think that eight is too many or not enough? Do you think that 10 is too many or not enough? Do you not have any idea? Um, what do you think is the right amount of races? I think that if you want 10 races, yeah, you definitely can't expect like to – for everyone to do every single one. That's my opinion. I think that that's a lot of racing. And, you know, if you want us to be able to actually have the battles, which you want us to have, um, <laughs> you do not want to see me after a ninth or tenth race. I'm going to be useless. Like I'm gonna, <laughs> not going to be putting up any sort of battle. So I think that, uh, yeah, that's a lot of racing. But if you still have the ability to, uh, choose a certain amount that you know is going to go to the world title, of course, that would be great. But, um, yeah, if there's a commitment where you have to do every single one, I think the number would actually have to reduce. Uh, but, you know, yeah, like I said, if you still had that choice um, and the, the minimum amount of races, yeah, if there's more, I guess there's just more to choose from. But that might not be up everyone's alley if you want every your favorite athletes to be at um, these certain events racing against each other. And then uh, I was talking to your coach uh, on the podcast here, David Tilby Davis, and he says that he thinks you can only peak for maybe three, four or five of these things with five being like the very uh, upper limit uh, and maybe it more realistically being that you can only be at your best for three or four of them. But you, you've said that you're going to race, uh, you know, seven of them, potentially six or seven of them. How do you pick which ones to peak for? How do you pick which ones you maybe go into the the least ready for? Yeah, yeah, it, that's an interesting question too because I only spoke to David um, the last couple of weeks about that. You know, he was kind of asking me, I guess, maybe where my head was at 
because obviously he's trying to plan as a coach for a season that's long and peaking for all these races. So he wants to see what I guess my ambitions are. And I was kind of pretty relaxed about it. I just said, um, let's just do things as normal. Let's not try and rewrite anything. I think the way that I've um, approached the season has worked quite well in the past, especially in the last couple of years. So let's just see where that lands. I said, um, traditionally, I feel like I race my best towards like the mid mid part of the year, mid to late part of the year. So let's see what's on the calendar and let's, you know, make them out my A races because that's just naturally how I feel like my progression goes. So let's not try and fight it. But then to contrary to that, I guess, is the fact that we've got Singapore as the first race uh, for me in April. And, you know, that's still kind of early, but it's still plenty of time to be in really great shape. So, and a race that I think really suits me. So it would be absolutely stupid to go to Singapore and not be ready for that for me, because it's a race where I want to try and win again. So let's be really ready or as ready as I can be for Singapore in the context of the whole year. Like I'm not going to go there feeling burnt out, but then come home, make sure I get good recovery in and then progress the season as normal. Once I get a few races under my belt, I feel like that race fitness um, is really there. Um, I really enjoy, you know, the training where it's, you know, a bit faster and a bit more race specific and the ball kind of rolls nicely as long as, you know, I'm trying to stay healthy uninjured. Um, That's just how I'm looking at it. It's, yeah, I'm not trying to change too much to be honest but yeah maybe David's the one that stresses out about that more than I do do you think there's any world like is it at all possible and is there an athlete either in the women's or the men's field who could win every race uh, of the year every t100 race yeah every t100 race all eight or that would be really difficult if they did that would just be like mind-boggling uh, I don't know. That would be super intense. Um, I don't really think that's possible, but maybe someone will prove me wrong. I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, but then again, like I remember Flora Duffy in 217, she was on this role. I know it's completely different. It's Olympic distance, but it's still like she was on this crazy role where, yeah, she could hardly lose much. So, you see athletes go through these purple patches um, and just win everything. So, yeah, maybe I'll say it is possible, but it would be extremely, extremely difficult. And then we've got the eight races this year. We've got the 20 contracted athletes. Do you think that 20 athletes is the right amount or do you think that the right amount is less or more than that? I think we will should wait to cast judgment until the end of the year. I think that, you know, obviously there's lots of things that people have opinions about, whether it be the amount of people racing, yeah, the amount of wild cards, how many races we should be doing. Um, But I think we should just see how it goes. I think that what the T100 team have been able to do, put together is really, really exciting as an athlete. I think they've got a lot of people engaged. I think they've got a lot of fans 
really excited about it. I have people that, you know, traditionally weren't, I didn't think they were that excited about triathlon, but until the PTO have come along and shown, been able to, you know, show the races and, you know, all these fans now able to watch them in such good quality, um, there's people engaged more than ever. So let's just see how 2024 unfolds. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that they will listen to the feedback and I'm sure the athletes will, as athletes will have something to say too. And I think that, yeah, we'll see how, see how it pans out first. I've been using a lever movement system for months now, and I honestly have no idea why I didn't start using it years ago when I first heard about lever. Um, for those of you who don't know what a lever movement system is, it's a system that you take to your treadmill. Like I take mine to the gym um, when I go to the treadmill at the gym, or if you're lucky enough to have a treadmill at home, you can just take it to your, your home treadmill and you you attach it to your treadmill. And then from there, it attaches to your hips so that it takes weight off while you run. And I'd been struggling with consistency in my running for years, like literally two to three years. And I think I was a bit heavier than I used to be and was just constantly getting niggles and injuries. So I decided to buy a lever movement system as like a last resort to try and fix it basically and get back into my running, uh, mainly because I saw heaps of pro triathletes and runners using them on Instagram. And it, it just changed everything for me. I, I, I just recently finished a four-week training camp with some pro triathletes and I was able to run 84 kilometers in a week there, which is the most I've ran in a single week in over two years. And I really do think it was all because of the consistency I found by using my lever movement system uh, a few times a week. I've completely gotten over a persistent lower limb and, and foot niggle I was getting from running the past couple of years. And yeah, I'm positive. I'm positive it's completely because of the load I was taking off um, two to three runs a week. And so if you're someone like me who struggles with finding consistency in your running because of niggles or persistent injuries, or like you just want to increase your, your mileage a bit more safely, or even just as a preventative measure against injury in general, in general with your running, then I truly can't recommend getting yourself a lever movement system enough. They're awesome. And it's just one of those purchases that I can rec recommend so comfortably knowing you 100% will not regret it. Um, so if you do want to try one for yourself, then you can head to their website and, and when you check out, make sure you, you use the discount code TTH, which gets you 20% off your order. And then with the, the wild cards or the hot shots as the PTO are calling them now, do you think that there is a perfect way to pick hot shots? Do you think that it should be, that it's okay that the PTO just pick, you know, say four people that are really marketable but maybe don't deserve their spot there, deserve in, in quotation marks? Or do you think that they should just be the next four highest ranked athletes? Yeah, that's a hard one because I understand that there's certain people that they'd love to see on the race course for because they are marketable. But I also see from a perspective from an athlete where you're just grinding away, doing everything you can, trying to get your PTO ranking up. Um, and then if you are overlooked when you are so close to, you know, being inside that top 20, that would be really difficult. Um, I think that the rankings 100% should be looked at because, you know, I even from my perspective a couple of years ago, that's why I was in America in, you know, end of Feb or at March just doing these races at Clash and Oceanside. I was just trying to get as many points as I could to even get onto the PTO tour. And, of course, I'm very lucky in my situation. It's not a problem now, but I, I sense that a lot of people are, are trying to do that. They're getting out of their comfort zones. They're doing these races that they might not do otherwise because they really want to try and get on the tour. So I think that um, rankings 100% should be looked at 
really closely when you're looking at roll downs because I think that's a, a really fair way to do it. And with some athletes missing races because, of course, like we've discussed, you only have to do a certain amount, um, there'll be plenty of opportunities where roll downs can be given shots. And I think there's also plenty of opportunities where if they want certain people there because they are quite marketable, I'm sure that there's room for both people without overlooking um, too many of the, the highly ranked athletes. Is there one of the wild cards who you're most excited about racing? And just to refresh uh, people's memories here, the, the Amelia Watkinson, Lucy Byram, Taylor Spivey and Flora Duffy, does one of them stand out as someone that you're really excited to see uh, on the start line and that you personally are looking forward to racing? Yeah, I guess. Um, well, I got this question a, a few days ago. I was doing some filming with the T100 crew actually in the lead up to Singapore and um, I said Flora Duffy because I'm just excited to see her racing again. You know, she's um, she had a couple of races, you know, over the last few years, but, you know, not too many in the um, middle distance. Obviously, she went to 70.3 Worlds. Um, she did the US Open. And, of course, her signing the contract was obviously some clear intent that she wants to give it a huge crack again. So um, her in, like, great form is always I don't know why I'm saying that because yeah she's such a good good competitor but obviously she brings a lot to the race and um also thinking about it now Lucy 100% um she raced super well um in Milwaukee last year and yeah she just gave it such a huge crack on the bike because I think she had a little bit of a niggle on the run so she kind of just thought to herself you know, let's just go, let's just mix this up a bit. And it absolutely was not good for me. It was just <laughs> the way she came past and she broke that group up and I had just done a massive turn at the front so I couldn't go with her. So um, 100% it was terrible for me but good on her. She did an, an incredible job and, yeah, to see people racing like that I think is super exciting so I have no doubt that she'll be looking to do that um, more than once again this year. I, uh, just a side note on that. One of my, like the funniest memories I have from being at the US Open was talking to you directly after the women's race, like not on camera or anything. We just, I just walked up to you and, uh, at that little after party dinner thing. And you just looked at me and you said like, holy F that was hard. And you were talking about like how, you know, Lu Lucy came up on the bike and it was just an absolute slug fest, like holding on for dear life. And then getting caught in that run battle with Taylor Nib, where you were taking back time, she was taking back time, you know, uh, and it just reminded me of like how great PTO racing can be with, you know, Lucy Byram, someone who didn't even automatically qualify, but she was the first person you wanted to talk to um, after the US Open race because of how hard she made the race. Well, yeah, it was, it was one of those things that I think reflecting on it now, it was just so hard because, uh, and I've, I've mentioned this a few times in a few different interviews, but as an athlete, like you strive for those days where there's just flow and there's just like an ease about it. And you literally think to yourself, okay, this is why I train so hard for these moments. Milwaukee was not one of those moments. <laughs> Maybe Singapore was. There's is very few times where like it actually comes quite easy and, you know, you, you're swimming on feet quite comfortably. The watts come like they should. And then the run pace feels, you know, like it should, like you've trained for. But the, 
for how hard we work and for how hard we train, I feel like those moments are so rare. And then there's those moments, yeah, like Milwaukee, where I just felt from the first stroke, it was just so difficult. And of course, I had a really good race. I'm so happy with my race, but it took like every ounce of my energy to race that hard. Um, I was just cooked the whole day. It was just so, it was just on. And of course, like with someone like Taylor Nib up the road, um, gaining time um, um, and, you know, I was working super hard on the bike, really good group. And yeah, just then for Lucy to come past it, I don't know, maybe it was like 10 or 20K to go. I can't even remember. It was just like, you know, just a, just demoralizing. I was like, there she goes. And I could not for the life of me go with her. So yeah. Um, it's just about resilience and sucking it up and doing the best you can uh, to to stay at the front. And yeah, it's definitely not always easy. I want to come back and touch on Taylor Nib in a second, but just before we jump off the hot shots, um, and, and particularly because of your respect and hearing you talk about Flora Duffy, I think it's pretty hard to argue that Flora Duffy isn't the greatest short course athlete of all time at this at this point. Like I've always been big on the Emma Snowsall train. Like I love Emma Snowsall, but even I'm like, God, how do you how do you argue with anyone who thinks Flora Duffy's the best of all time at that distance? Do you think that she can find that same sort of athlete that she is over, over short course in the the T100 format? Yeah, I guess maybe that's why I. I said her because we'll I guess we'll wait and find out that's what I think a lot of people um are anticipating and I don't think it's easy um you know for someone that's able to and achieve an Olympic gold medal maybe people think like of course you know you should be able to come across and do this or do that but I think people quickly lose context of what she probably put her body through to win that gold medal um the years that she was racing, even, you know, I was racing her a lot um, into 16 to 17. Um, she had an injury maybe in 218. But, you know, like I saw what she did and her absolute consistency when she was on the start list. And, yeah, to be able to top it off with a gold medal, like her form into Tokyo was just there was no one beating her that day. She was absolutely untouchable. So, yeah, but obviously there's a cost from that, right, what you put your body through. So, yeah, I really hope that she's recovered from the injury that she had last year. And if she has, I think 100% um, we could see her do a huge amount of damage in the the middle to long distance world. And Taylor Nib, um, you've obviously had some great battles with her if you went back to Texas and then the US Open. Do you see her as the hardest person to beat in the sport right now? Yeah, she's really strong. I feel like um, there's no denying like her raw power, like just the way that she can, yeah, tear past you um, is just pretty insane. She's, yeah, so talented. Um yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't want to talk her up too much. I've got to try and beat this woman. <laughs> but, yeah, there's 100%. She is such a talented athlete and I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I've also mentioned before, like everyone thinks of her as a cyclist and, yes, of course, people naturally think that because 
she is that she is so good on the bike, but I also think that's, you know, she, she's also one of the top swimmers and, you know, I think she had the top three fastest run splits in the Paris test event. Um, and that's, you know, 65 women or so trying to get their Olympic spot. So think about how fast people would have been running for that. So yeah, she's so well-rounded. She was only, she only ran, I think like a minute 30 slower than you at the U S open as well after being second out of the water and, and doing what she did on the bike. Like, yeah, I think people do sleep on how well-rounded Taylor Nib is. Yeah, 100%. And but that's e- but I understand how that happens, though, when people get so caught up in, like, their exceptional skill. Like, her exceptional skill is the bike. There's no doubt about that. But obviously maybe that sometimes takes away from how good she is, a swimmer and a runner too. But for someone like me, and I'm sure the other ladies racing her, we're well aware. Like we're not going to listen to the outside commentary and be like, oh, yeah, her run, you know, is a bit off. It's like, no, we know how fast she is. We're we're very switched on to that and we know um, how fast we have to be to try and beat someone like Taylor. And that's that's pretty much having an A-plus day. And, you know, like I've mentioned before, yeah, they're hard to come by, but that's why we train because they are possible and you just hope that they're possible when yeah someone ta- like Taylor is on the race course so you can beat them and yeah when you know you've done that you've you've had a very very good day do you think that the same could be said for you a little bit because at the uh, Asian Open you had the fastest bike split of the day and that was a, a very strong field like we talked about before how good a cyclist Imogen Simmons is and I think you rode 15 or 20 seconds faster than her for the fastest bikes of the day, but everyone just thinks of you as a runner. Like everyone thinks that you can be dropped on the swim, you can be dropped on the bike, and it's just a matter of whether you can catch up to people on the run. So, yeah, do you think that same thing happens with you being pigeonholed as a runner? Yeah, potentially. I think that, um, yeah, I think that's easy to do. I think that, uh, yeah, no doubt that the run is something that um, has helped me achieve a lot of my great results in the last couple of years over the middle distance. But I also think that if I didn't have the swim and bike to put me, put myself in that position to begin with, I wouldn't be able to use my run as the weapon that it is. So I think that um, a lot of the time, if the bike is quite difficult and, you know, everyone's obviously riding at 20 meters and everyone has to have a really hard ride, that advent, that's an advantage to me because, yeah, like I guess I'm a runner, but I'm I'm also I also just consider myself as a triathlete because I put I probably put more effort into my swimming and cycling than I than I do my running. It's just that the running comes a bit more natural to me, and um, yeah, hopefully over the next few years, it's something I can actually uh, improve more. I I did look at this the other day actually because I was thinking I was just thinking about the season um, and. I was actually a little taken aback by it when I when I realized that that you had had of the three PTO races last year you had the fastest bike at the Asian Open and then the fifth fastest bike at the European Open and at um the US Open and then you were ninth out of the water in the European Open and seventh out of the water in the other two and I think you you had the the uh I think you had like the fourth fastest run at one the third fastest run at the other and the fastest run maybe at at the, at the US Open I can't fully remember but 
anyway, the point being is that that's like re- like ridiculously consistent swim, bike, and run. Like I was a bit taken aback when I realized you had the fifth fastest bike splits out of um, you know all three PTO races, which was actually pretty much as good as your running record over the year. Yeah, and I guess that yeah, like I said, it just goes to show there's um, what you see projected by certain athletes or yourself as an athlete. Um, or just the media in general, it's that's what people kind of consume and that's what it's easy for them to kind of latch on to. But, of course, when you look at the data and maybe look at the splits or, you know, that might tell a slightly different story. And, yeah, like I said, um, of course I would love to be able to keep using my run as a weapon, but I also need to make sure that um, I'm up there in the swim um, and I'm positioned on the bike really well you know, if I can have the fourth or fifth split on the bike, like, you know, some people still say like that's getting dropped or that's like not that great, but it's like, well, yeah, I'm still (laughs) at the front of the race where I can actually get off the bike and hopefully um, make inroads if I'm behind or extend on a lead if I'm in the lead. And yeah, it's, it's not over till it's over. And um, yeah, it's a triathlon. So I just kind of focus what I can do in each discipline to get the best out of myself. Um, yeah, on the race course. Win Republic has just unveiled their lineup of professional triathletes for the highly anticipated 2024 triathlon season. Among the athletes joining forces with Win Republic are Ashley Gentle, Chelsea Sodaro, Lionel Sanders, Braden Curry, Leon Chevalier, Josh Amberger, Aaron Royal, Susie Cheatham, Jocelyn McCauley, Sam Appleton, and Rebecca Clark. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The list goes on, with many more exceptional athletes set to be wearing Win Republic tri suits in 2024. Win Republic has forged partnerships with these specific world leading professional triathletes, aiming to support and empower them in their journey towards achieving their goals in 2024 and beyond. This collaboration presents an exciting opportunity for Win Republic to leverage their extensive and detailed analysis and knowledge of aerodynamic, hydrodynamic, and ergonomic testing. The invaluable feedback, encompassing both men and women and middle and long-distance athletes, has the ultimate goal to further enhance Win Republic's industry-leading aero tri-suit range. At Win Republic, excellence is their standard. They work with the best to bring you the best tri-suits in the world of triathlon. So, whether you're a seasoned athlete or an aspiring triathlete enthusiast, be sure to check out Win Republic for the latest updates, insights, and top-notch gear that will elevate your triathlon experience to new heights in 2024. And if you do find yourself wanting to try any of their tri-suits, cycling, running apparel, anything for yourself, use the discount code TTH15 for 15% off at their website. And so now let's move on to the, the second part of the podcast, which was something me and you talked about before we started recording, which... We wanted to do a little thing where we just took everyone inside um, the last week of your training um, leading up to, I guess we're leading up to the the Singapore Open uh, on April 13th, 14th, something like that. So um, yeah, would you be able to take us through the last week of your training Monday through to Sunday? Okay, sure. I'm just going to go into training peaks. I can hardly remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, so I'm going (laughs) to rely on training peaks a bit here. Um, yeah, so on Monday I did a trainer ride in the morning that was just pretty steady. It was just like, yeah, if, yeah, it's going through different, um, what, sorry, I'm just a bit distracted now trying to look at this. Yeah, pretty basic, um, an hour and a half 
And then I went to the pool and I did 3.2K and that was a pretty easy day. So Mondays are usually pretty uh, chill. And I think I also could have had a massage that day as well. Um, On Tuesday, I had a strength swim, but I actually, with due to a few pool timings, I actually went to the local reservoir. So we went and did open water. So I warmed up with Josh a bit, did a bit with him, and then I had my own kind of session that I adapted from the pool and I just did that in the open water. Um, that was just over 4K. Are you allowed to swim in the reservoir? Yes. Right. We all, yeah. all the ones around here you get kicked out of if you try to swim in them. No, no, you're allowed. Yeah, it's super popular for like open water swimming and kayaking and stuff. But we've actually had so much rain that, um, yeah, we it was closed for a bit. But you know, it was it was it had stopped spilling by the time we went there, so we were safe. Did you wear a wetsuit for that? No, I didn't wear a wetsuit because um, we're in Queensland, Jack. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been super hot, but the rain did actually cool the water down because without the rain, um, the water in there, even though it's a huge reservoir, it honestly can get up to 30 degrees. It's wow. been that hot. So, uh, no, I just used a swim skin and I actually used a few different toys and resistant devices to kind of do a bit of a real hard strength set. So. And how do you adjust it from the pool to the open water? Like how do you say it's like, I don't know, maybe you could tell us what the set was, for example, but do you just go by like feel, like number of strokes or do you go by time? Like do you set your watch to beep? How do you how do you structure it? Uh, so sometimes I've got something in my cap that can tell you that it can beep every, you know, if you set it to a minute, it'll beep every minute. So I wasn't using that, but that's something that you can use um, like a – yeah, like a watch in your cap really and that's a really good way to like do interval training in open water. But, no, I just had my watch but I wasn't even using my watch really. I honestly just – I spoke to my coach, told him I was adapting it and just decided to go like, you know, from boy to landmark which is literally like a tree that I know that's jutting out that's like approximately 300 metres. So once you know like the distances and you know the approximate reps you're supposed to do, um, sometimes, you know, it was a super basic set of, um, 300s with, with these resistant socks on that I had on. And then I just did a negative split 800 to finish. So, um, you know, in a place like that, I'm pretty aware of the distances to certain boys or landmarks. So sometimes it's honestly as simple as just like to the landmark and back, um, just to change it up from like a, a certain amount of meters in the pool. And what's the point with the resistance socks? Tell me about them. Uh, I guess, you know, adding resistance to your stroke um, has helped me quite a bit. It's just basically, um, I don't know, we need David here as well. But basically, yeah, the resistance kind of helps you really feel for the water. And I think that um, when you have a bit more resistance, you can kind of like it really emphasizes that catch. And, you know, if you know that you're working on your stroke or you've got, you've kind of nailed that a bit more, you can really make sure that you can then um, nail that down by adding some resistance. And yeah, on my laps, we're just like absolutely smashed by the end of it. So, and when you take that off too, it's like a really nice freeing feeling. You can kind of like go through the water um, and 
yeah, your your stroke should be dialed in. Obviously, you take the resistance off and it's like a really nice feeling to feel that connection in the water without um, being kind of held back by any resistance. Um, and then after that, I had a bit of a gym session, so 45 minutes in the gym. And then I had a run. It was an hour 20 and I did that in the like the path and the trails nearby. And basically I went to a hill and I just did some, I just did some drills um, up the hill. So I hardly doing any, my, my first actual run session isn't until this week, to be honest. So I've been doing a lot of aerobic work and a lot of drill work, a lot of time in the gym and a lot of hills. So my running looks so basic right now and but yeah I think it helps build resistance for me um the hill works really great and yeah then I start doing the sessions I feel like I'm pretty strong so that's kind of the point of just the the basic running I wanted to ask you about this because I saw this on your Instagram but you've been a long time ASICS user but you were you sort of officially announced that you moved uh to to running in on which a lot of the the world's best triathletes have done like the Norwegians and and Chelsea Sedara and that kind of thing was that a decision that you made based on like anything in particular or how did that come about yeah I guess yeah it wasn't it's not always easy decisions I'd been with ASICS yeah for a super long time and had a a great relationship with them um ASICS Australia that is and yeah but sometimes I guess in those long-term um connections like you need a change as well and I guess an opportunity came up to work with on and yeah it's something I obviously (laughs) considered hugely um I think a lot of it was down to, I guess, the innovation with the shoes that the, that they're working through and just seeing some of the stuff that they're doing um, in their training shoes but, of course, in their racing shoes and how closely they're working with the athletes, I guess, to develop them. I think that's something that um, is really important and which I, yeah, really value. And, yeah, I guess as a as an athlete, especially as, as an Australian, um, of course, living in Australia and training most of the time here, but like, as we know, a lot of the racing is not in this hemisphere. So I guess the global support from on is, um, was a huge draw card too, because I know that when I do go overseas for however many months on endless training camps and between the races, I can kind of pack a couple of shoes from Australia and then, have the support of the team and also product when I'm overseas and that's going to be really huge for me because sometimes it's kind of stressful trying to work that out and bring everything you need from Australia to to the Northern Hemisphere. Um, Yeah, it's not always easy with the amount of luggage that you can bring um, from Oz. And when you're like one of the best runners in the sport and you're trying to make a decision about, well, what brand of of shoe do I wear next year for like a massive season like this year is with the T100, do you get to, do you like go through and try multiple different brands? Like did you try Ons racing shoe compared to say Asics compared to other brands before you make that decision? Yeah, I guess um, I wasn't able to know what, ASICS Australia were doing for 2024 so that was really difficult um, because it actually stopped making the shoe that 
I really liked racing in as well. The one that they brought out in 2023, I I was actually racing in the previous model. So that was also kind of a bit of a hurdle because um, I was really unsure of what their um, product line was going to be for this year. And I think a lot of the priority was going to their marathon runners. So, yeah, I don't know what it is. So, yeah, looking um, to on and seeing what they're doing. Obviously, there's there's still this stuff they're still working on that um, I don't know about and I can't see, especially for the Paris Olympics. But I was able to test shoot, test ride, um, yeah, quite a different, you know, lot of models and and I guess know their vision and even that just helps as an athlete um, knowing what's coming and seeing some prototypes and um, being able to test even the the training shoes and what's evolving there definitely helps you, yeah, have a sense of, um, you know, what what they feel like and what's happening uh, for the future. And sort of maybe last one on this, but uh, it is a really interesting point. We saw that Gustav uh, got that prototype racing shoe for the 2022 Ironman World Championships uh, from on is do you ever have conversations with them like when you're like okay like yeah i'll i'll jump on board with you guys i like like i've tried the shoes i'm liking them do you ever have conversations where it's like hey can i maybe get my hands on a prototype that no one else has like gustav had for for you know a pto grand final or a pto race or or something like that or does that just not even happen at all (laughs) i don't know i think that um request from gustav was quite a niche one i'm not sure if they i'm not sure of the production on on that maybe it's yeah what they were looking to and and that's something that's actually gone into helping uh produce the next phase of the race shoe um and obviously they're both very Gustav and Christian are very involved in that process so yeah I probably can't comment on that it's a lot of um secret squirrel business probably (laughs) uh leading up to to Paris uh for sure but you know, I think 100% they do have a great team there and I think that, um, you know, Josh has been working with On for a few years now and I see the interaction that he has and the ability for him to try different shoes and actually provide feedback straight away. Um, that's really, yeah, really great, especially for athletes but especially as triathletes because, of course, we're runners but we have to do swimming and biking before that and that involves a lot you know, a pre-fatigue, um, a few different things that need to be considered. And the fact that um, on have a team that are 100%, you know, thinking about triathletes as triathletes, not just triathletes that, you know, have to run, you know, um, that's a, a pretty exciting prospect as someone that's, you know, signing on to the team. I do have one more runner-related question and a lot of people are probably bored by runner questions, but I'm fascinated by them. In your training right now, when you're not doing that many sessions, you know, you may be doing some hills and you're doing a lot of easy aerobic volume. Do you just wear like safer jogging shoes or are you doing any of that in your race shoe? No, I have, I just do it in like training shoes. Um, the only time I'm yeah doing anything in race shoes is yeah, for when I was testing anything. Um, but yeah, traditionally, uh, not doing anything in, in race shoes, I think, I went on this really weird phase a couple of years ago where I like banned myself from like running in race shoes when I wasn't, when I was training, I was like, nah, it's got to save it for the race. You got to feel really good. And then I kind of went through a phase where I was like, no, 
I want to be able to run really fast in my really fast run sessions. I'm putting on like the race shoes. And now I feel like I'm going to find just a, a healthy, a healthy balance. But yeah, it always feels super good when you're in like top, top form. You have a super fast track session and you can put on race shoes. It's like the best feeling ever. So I just try and contain that to like maybe once before a big race. And then that's enough to get me excited. So say before Singapore, uh, the ONS ratio, I think it's called the uh, Echo, the Cloud Boom Echo 3 from memory. I might have that completely wrong. Yeah, um, sh- yeah okay. Yeah, that's what it's called. Um, what, like, what session will it kind of be where you put that on before Singapore? Will it be a really fast track session? Would it be a brick session? Would it be, you know, a threshold, threshold session on the road? What, what kind of session will it be? Yeah, probably a track session. I think um, I was in Boulder last year before Milwaukee and then Singapore. And once you get used to the altitude there and you're running on tarmac, which I don't do here in, in Brizzy, it's so fast because, like, the air is thin, there is no humidity, and you're in, like, prime race form. Yeah, like a super fast um, track session. I was doing some fast 200s at the end of them too, and I was, like, I was having to dial it down. It was like, okay, you're not trying to make the track team. Just, <laughs> like, calm down. But that's that's how I get a little bit because a lot of the time I feel like I'm just slogging it out through the year. like. People think, you know, I'm a strong runner. I'd be running fast all the time, but that it's a hundred percent not true. I'm like underwhelmingly slow most of the time. <laughs> um, but then when you obviously have to hit the sessions where you have to go fast, yeah, of course you, you go fast. But yeah, most of the time it's it's actually not that exciting. So this Tuesday jog, which we've just taken a ten minute detour, but this Tuesday jog <laughs> that you've done here, what what uh, like pace per kilometer did you average for that run? Um, well, it ended up being 542 minute per K, but that's because I was walking, um, down the hill. So that would have blown it out, but I can tell you, I did a warm up, and the warm up was 502 pace. That would surprise some people, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, I barely crack five minute per K pace on easy runs, um, yeah, I'm pretty slow when I run slow. <laughs> I did oh, I did 502 pace this morning and that was pretty flat as well. So it was extra slow. Cuz I do I do do a lot of running in the trails and in um on hilly terrain when I'm home. So I guess that blows it out a bit, but yeah, even if it's flat um but then on some days honestly, especially when you get a bit fitter and you know, some days your easy runs, I might surprise myself and I'm like, "Oh, it's you know, it's dipped below 5 minute K pace, you know, I know I've probably got fresher legs, but a lot of the time, yeah, it is generally slower than what some people might presume. Um, Wednesday, I went out um, a little bit west actually, and I was on my TT bike and I did uh, some efforts at PTO effort um, on the t- in the TT bars. So that was, yeah, three and a half hours. And that was actually the first time I'd ridden out there in a while and it was really good terrain because there was some like uh, climbs where, you know, I was trying to stay in my aero bars um, and some little descents. So, yeah, just trying to get used to the TT bike again really and, yeah, obviously some PTO-type efforts. 
And then that afternoon I had a swim and I was absolutely cooked, I will tell you that, because in between that I had an interview with T100 for the the video that they're putting out and sometimes that kind of stuff is harder than any swim bike or run I'll do. So. Is it just because like after a ride like that, you don't get the same time to sit on a couch and eat food like you would or have a nap? Yeah. 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 And you're, ask, you're answering questions, you know, about triathlon, about competitors and, you know, you're on camera. Um, you have to have a bit of energy about you. I pro- I'm probably going to look absolutely horrific. I probably <laughs> won't watch the video. <laughs> but probably people will see in my eyes that I'm just so tired. But, um, yeah, just like a bit of fatigue that I'm not used to. I don't usually – walk around with a camera crew in tow so it's a different um <laughs> different layer of fatigue that gets added how long worth of efforts did you do on the bike like what were the intervals that you actually did at pto pace so i did 10 by three minute efforts oh yeah 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 at so, taylor nib pace at hold taylor nib, hold, hold taylor nib wheel pace <laughs> oh yeah i don't know don't i don't i would never want to know what she does no I don't, yeah probably be scary <laughs> Uh, so Thursday I did a run and, oh, I swam first, actually. I did six and a half K and I did some efforts as well. I did some threshold efforts. I had five 200s and in between that, in between the five 200s, I just had aerobic work with snorkel, uh, two by 300. So basically 200 threshold, 200 threshold, two by 300 with snorkel times by five. And I had a super long warm up before that. So, um, yeah, it was 6.5K in the end. And I actually broke the 200 threshold into two 100s to make it more manageable because I was a little bit – I actually swam all right, but I felt like I needed to break it up to get more out of myself. So, make the captain's call on that one I did and were you were you swimming with Josh for that or do you swim with a group yeah so I was swimming with Josh we did the warm-up together we did about two and a half k together and did some efforts just to start like you know um HVO kind of efforts and I was just like swimming on his hips swimming on his feet just kind of reintroducing myself to some race type work nice to be able to like feel the water when you're it's a bit turbulent and sitting on feet and hips so we actually had separate sessions though after that so I just went and did what I wanted to do and he had a separate session but they were both the same length so um a lot of the time I try and ask David to like the, the key sessions to be very similar because you know even if I can't well I can't keep up with Josh but sometimes especially closer to races I like to try and um, sit on his feet or keep up with him for as long as possible and you know he's breaking the water it's hard for him because he's pushing himself and then I'm just trying to get the most out of myself on his feet for how long I can um, not every session of course but when you're trying to get that um, closer to races and that high intensity effort trying to keep up with someone's obviously going to get a bit more out of you and then what were the details of the run in the afternoon uh, so the run was um, a really long warm up again, and back to a hill. And I did just thirty eight times thirty seconds VO two like effort up uh, a hill. So yeah, pretty basic. 
And are you just all out with them? Like are you just killing yourself every 30 seconds or is it like controlled death? Um, I try and make it a controlled death. You know, you can experiment. Sometimes it go a bit easier and try and push it at the end. But basically 30 seconds, it's so short. It should be like, yeah, maybe like die early and hold on even, <laughs> Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was an hour 16. Okay. Yeah, so like yeah. 16K, 15K, 14K, something like that. It was 14.9K. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would have run a little bit in the hills, like in the trails. Oh, no, PTO were filming. I couldn't. Yeah, we did like a pretty basic warm-up, but generally I'd run trail for 45 minutes before that, just easy. So it's fairly slow, but obviously tough going a lot of the time in the in the trails. Um, but, yeah, not a huge set K-wise, but yeah, hour 16 in the end. Nerdbelts is a brand created by professional long-course triathlete and good friend of the podcast, Steve McKenna. Steve was having issues with fueling and hydrating during long-course triathlon races and during his long runs in the build-up to those races, and he tried all of the running packs, belts, and handhelds on the market and just couldn't find a good one that he liked. So over the course of about a year, Steve went about creating his own product, and he gave an example of his final design uh, to a few people and everyone who used it loved it. And they loved it so much that Steve desired, decided to create what we now know as the Nerd Belt. Um, I was one of the people who tried it pretty early on. And since then, I've tried both the V1 and V2 of the Nerd Belt. And I seriously love them both. I use my V2 for every single long run or long running session I do. And I've even started using the V1 on just my, my little easy 6 to 10 kilometer jogs um, here in the summer because it's got so hot. Um, the V1 has two times 200 milliliter bottles and the V2 has the option to add a 550 milliliter bottle. Um, so that's why I use the V2 for my longer runs. And I personally probably do like the V2 a little bit more, but I think Steve maybe prefers the V1. So uh, either way, they're both re really great. Um, I love them both. I use them both every single week. Um, but it is one of those things where you probably could find a use for both so maybe if you want one that has a bit more storage capability you'd go the v2 and if you wanted something a little bit lighter you'd go the v1 um, the thing i love most about my nerd belt is you literally don't notice it when you're wearing it you put it on you start running and after the first few kilometers of your first run in it you've just forgotten it's there they don't bounce around like crazy like every other running belt I've tried. And you can also fit your phone in it, your keys in it, your gels, plus the, the hydration. Um, and, and if you're in America right now, you can get yourself a nerd belt on the feed as they've now just started stocking it. Um, and everywhere else in the world, you can just jump onto the nerd belts website to get one. Uh, I don't actually get anything from this. Like this isn't a paid advertisement or anything like that. I just really love nerd belts and I, I sort of said to Steve that I wanted to promote them on the show and tell everyone about them because I really believe they're a great product and, and that if you get one, you'll genuinely love it and it will make your training better and, and you'll just be stoked that you got like you that you came across them really because that's how I felt. Um, so yeah, if you when I told Steve I was going to do that, he said, well, at least let me give you a discount code. So if you do want to try one, um, you know, for your racing or for your long training runs, then you can use the discount code TTH15 uh, on the Nerd Belts website, which gets you 15% off anything there if you wanted to get a V1, a V2, or both. Um, seriously, I think you'll love it. I think it'll make your training better. It's a great way to fuel and hydrate and, and take your phone with you on long runs when you're out running in the forest or the bush to be a bit safer. Um, so yeah, 
it supports Steve, it supports a great brand, but more more like more importantly, it's just a great product that I think you'll love. And when they're filming like a 15k run like that, do you do they just do you just do your thing and they just do their thing or do they be like, "Hey, stop, can you do this again?" Like do you stop and start more? Does the hour and 16 minute run turn into like a 2 hour process? <laughs> no, actually it's really good. Um it was literally I I didn't do I didn't do anything fake. Um, that's rare in a triathlon in a triathlon video that's rare no yeah and honestly it's good like I think they know that um, you've just you've got to do what you've got to do Um, and a lot of the time (laughs) they probably can read from my face you know I'm not doing that again (laughs) but (laughs) I'm not doing that for a pretty picture you just got to follow me Um, you do have a very good face that says that that says that exact thing like that's yeah, the, not, the resting bitch face. That, that, that's not happening face. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but no, nothing was fake about that. They just followed me for about 20 minutes in the warm-up and then um, met me at the hill and then just filmed some of that and, yeah, it was it was easy. So I think it's more like the questions afterwards and the commentary around it. Usually, you know, you can just relax and stretch and just go home and do whatever but, you know, obviously for the video, I pro- provided a bit of context um, and commentary about what I just did and how I feel. And it, I don't know, it's not that hard at all, but f- for some reason, sometimes it just feels, yeah, you just got to make sure that you're ready to talk to the camera. And then are you home like straight away after that? Are you an early to bed kind of person after a day like that? Are you, or, or are you just like sort of go to bed whenever, get up whenever? Um, how, how do you handle your recovery? Um, so it kind of depends what the weather's doing. In January, I was waking up a bit earlier for sure because January was like hell month in Queensland. It was <laughs> unlivable. Uh, <laughs> no, not really. It was just really tough and hot and humid. But if you woke up super early anyway, it would be more humid. You were just kind of trying to avoid the strong UV Um so a lot of it is honestly like weather dependent because it's obviously I, I get I don't go to bed particularly early, but I mean I don't I just try and wake up at a reasonable time in the heat so I can get my session done in the morning and then have the whole day to like spread my training out. I'm not someone who loves just like getting it done and then having a whole afternoon free. Um, I think there's a time and place for that when where I really enjoy that on a recovery day, but I, I honestly basically try and use all, every single daylight hour because I really like to be able to relax between sessions and um, especially I've got an afternoon session that's particularly challenging. I like to be able to recover properly before that and nail it rather than just rush to get everything done. So, yeah, it depends what the calendar looks like and what the, the weather's doing, to be honest. Um, Friday was um, a swim. And that was just pr- that was super basic. After the long swim the day before, it was about three point six k. Yeah, just mainly aerobic. And then I had a bike session where um, I was on the trainer. I just did some like short, uh, short efforts. And then I had a recovery run in the afternoons. So yeah, that's super basic too. I think I probably would have just gone into the trails, um, run pretty easy. Yeah, I did 5.23 pace. So, yeah, that was pretty slow going. Uh, that was 
47 minutes and 53 seconds. <laughs> and that was Nelly 9K. Very yeah, specific. Pretty, pretty slow. Uh, what about the what about the short uh, intervals on the bike? And why why I sort of maybe pause on this one is because your coach is getting quite famous or maybe infamous for his VO two bike sessions and just his VO two blocks in general. Um, so I'm assuming when you say short efforts, you mean that there were some VO two efforts. No, I did that VO two block last year. I haven't done it this year. I think I know the one that you're talking about. It was like one minute efforts until you fail. Um, I haven't done that one yet, but these efforts were just yeah on the on the trainer. It was it wasn't that session I think that you're talking about, but yeah, it was just a thirty minute warm up, and then um, yeah, really it was like a two minute effort, a one minute effort, one minute effort, thirty seconds, thirty seconds, and then five minutes to finish. Yeah, it was quite short and not that many efforts in total. Um, but yeah, there was a few like thirty seconds all out kind of efforts in there. And same with the one minute was all out too and then finish more of a controlled type effort. But, uh, yeah, I did do that VO2 block that you're talking about. (laughs) Done that. (laughs) Been there. Um, I did a core session at the gym and I did some physio exercises for my shoulder. That was about 45 minutes. Is there something going on with your shoulder? No, my shoulder's good. My shoulder was totally terrible at the end of last year. I had um um oh, I forget the word. What had was wrong with my shoulder? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was really inflamed in the rotator cuff. Um I'd had it before and yeah, it was it was it kind of came back at the end of last year. More towards um before Lenkawi and stuff, it was pretty terrible. So, you know, it's really good now, but just doing more preventative stuff than anything, just making sure that I'm using the right muscles and doing lots of um, activation work and prehab type stuff now that it's, yes, it's fine now, thankfully. Was it like swimmer's shoulder? Like did you have some impingement there at the at the rotator? Yeah, cuff? I did. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just a lot of inflammation. Um yeah, and a lot of stuff that I think honestly comes back to my stroke. I think when I get a bit sloppy with my stroke, um, I'm just not activating the right type of muscles. And uh, I had it a bit, I had it really badly actually at the start of 2018. I was hardly able to swim. But, yeah, thankfully I haven't had any problems apart from the end of last year. But they didn't, they weren't as nearly as bad as 2018, uh, thankfully. So, yeah, I was on top of it super quickly and, um yeah, my physio here in Australia helped me out a lot actually getting on top of that. So are you worried about that at all for the, the long season ahead? Um, not really, no. I feel like I've got enough tools to kind of recognize when, you know, maybe it's could be flaring up or maybe, you know, Josh is going to be on to me a lot at the start of the year too, especially on my stroke. I think he there's a few little things that I do within my stroke that, when he knows that they're happening, if I get into a bad habit of letting them settle and letting them become part of my stroke again, that kind of sets off a bit of that, that sets off problems. So it's more just about like these exercises, um, for kind of prehab stuff, um, good activation and obviously awareness of my stroke. And that's really helpful when someone like Josh is there knowing the cues of, um, when to kind of step in and, 
yeah, let me know what I'm doing wrong. Uh, Saturday, I had a long run. I did it, didn't do that many Ks this week because this week I was in the trails again. Uh, So it was an hour 43 and it was 19.5K. So it was 5.16 pace. Um, Yeah, that's, that was pretty basic. And in comparison, say just for context, for like the week before, um, I did an hour 51 and I did nearly 24K because I went on a completely different route and I did a bit of a, like a 5K effort within that. So it kind of was like, yeah, a four or 5K difference. But yeah, today, uh, last week, it was purely aerobic on the trails, just, yeah, really chilled. So is a long run a weekly part of your schedule? Yeah. Yep. I've got a long run this week on Thursday and then usually they're on most Saturdays. Yeah. And does it just, does it stay the same like all year? Is it always around that, you know, hour 40 to two hours like you've just talked about or does it, does it vary? Does it sometimes have a session in it? Is it just like mostly always just easy? Yeah. So I think at the start of the year, um, just kind of scrolling through training peaks, I would have started it, you know, obviously after a few weeks of just building up my run super slow, I think it would have been, yeah, it looks like. I was doing an hour 20 for a while and then, um, yeah, now an hour 40. I think it generally stays at an hour 40. Sometimes I go over when I want to do more (laughs) Um, or I do, yeah, nothing more than two hours. Um, I don't think I've I've ever done much over two hours. And then when you get closer to a race, like say Singapore, does your long run always have a session in it or does it like does it get easier but longer is it does it have like a pattern your long run yeah so generally my long run doesn't have a session in it but some Saturdays um I've only done it like once this year or maybe twice um I'll go down to my local park run and just run it so like the first time I did it I don't know I ran just easy or or tempo-y and then um sometimes I'll want to do it and do it faster and then obviously just keep going for the long run so that's just a bit random when I feel like doing that and I'll just tell tell David but generally the long runs are just aerobic and and quite easy without a session in them so can you tell us what time you did at park run last week yeah park run last week um I did just got to make sure I say the right time it's nothing (laughs) it's nothing amazing trust me um, 1741. Oh, still pretty fast. You know, 330-ish. That's fast. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, um, it was all right. Like I, I just felt like doing an effort to kind of blow out the cobwebs. I, like I said, I haven't really been doing any structure, much structure or, you know, long or hard run sessions. So I kind of felt like doing that, knowing that this week I'm starting run sessions. So, um, yeah, I'll, it was I it was actually like not too bad. Our park run is pretty um it's not super flat. So yeah, it was nice to blow out the cobwebs a bit and keep running again for then keep running for more volume. Yeah. Sounds like your run's in a good place, by the way. Early doors, but yeah, that's uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I said to David the other day, I'm like, I feel like I need to 
yeah, get cracking with it and, you know, then I'll probably look at my program and regret saying that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's hard for me sometimes at the start of the year. Like I never have too much confidence going into any race before it, but I definitely know that once I get to the race, I look back at the work I've done. I, at the start of the season, building that resilience in the, in the trails and the hills, um, it pays dividends. So it's definitely worthwhile being patient. Do you ever get confidence in your run from a, a session or does it, does it only come once you've had a good race and you're like, oh, it is actually in a good spot? Um, I think that I get confidence from just week after week of work uh, and in saying that it's always in hindsight. So like now it's like no, but once I do that work and, and know that I'm, you know, stringing weeks and weeks together, months and months together, that gives me a lot of confidence. Um, not saying, of course, sometimes, you know, things don't go 100%. You might have to miss or change a few things if niggles crop up, but generally, I've been super, super consistent and I think that's been great. Um, But, yeah, like the sessions I mentioned earlier, like there's a few track sessions I did in Boulder last year where um, and even a few longer 2K efforts that I was doing and I was definitely, you know, three or four weeks of worth of running where I was like, yep, this is it. Like it made me excited. But yeah, three to four weeks out of the whole year is not many, many weeks, is it? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, takes a while to get there. <laughs> yeah, that is fascinating that you spend so much of your, your year sort of unsure about where your run's at and, that, and then you have like a few good weeks or a few good races where it makes you realize like, oh yeah, I'm in a good position. But yeah, that, that, that's actually, yeah, I probably wouldn't have, believed, I would have just assumed that you're always like 24-7, you know, 365 confident in your run um, and confident where it's at. So yeah, that's a good insight. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rest of Saturday, I just did a yoga session. I just did that at home. Um, just relaxed. And then Sunday I did a ride. I did three, nearly three hours. And within that, I just did some big gear work. So, um, I did them in blocks. I did, um, three times 15 minute blocks. So 11 minutes of that was at low cadence, four minutes, just choice cadence, and then um, a, a bit faster, like, you know, not h- hard, but just under 200 watts. And then a set of five minutes. So three minutes of that was at low cadence. And then the two minutes was, yeah, around 200 watts. Um, I just cycled through that for, for nine sets. And then, um, yeah, I did some easy and then I just finished with three minutes at, 230 watts and then I rode home so yeah a three-hour ride with um just some just some lower cadence work in it with a yeah three-minute little effort at the end have you always done some lower cadence work or is it a new thing in your program uh yeah I've always kind of done it I think it's always been a staple um like low cadence hill reps in the the Australian program, no matter what coach you had, I feel like everyone has always done it. I feel like there was definitely a period of time when I was with Jamie Turner, we didn't do it that much at all. Most of the hill reps was actually like really hard. They weren't low cadence. They were like high watts. Um, But yeah, now I've been doing a bit of the last four or five years. And then, yeah, with David, I actually, yeah, I do quite a lot. Um, When I was in Andorra last year too for, 
a couple of months I was doing quite a bit of it up the the huge climbs there so pretty easy to get in the low gear and just grind for hours up there. And when you do it when you're doing your big gear work is it ever like you know really high power and low gear or is it sort of always lower gear and that moderate type of effort? Yeah, so at the moment, um, a lot of my sessions, say the one I just did on Sunday, I did some low gear work, but the watts weren't high. It was just, yeah, it was pretty basic. It wasn't hard. Um, There's definitely times where, yeah, I do low gear work and have high watts. You're really getting a lot more torque through there. And I think that's actually coming up in the next couple of weeks. I might have some sessions where, yeah, I do a bit, um, the, the watts creep up a bit, but generally for me, um, yeah, I keep it pretty controlled. And a lot of the times too, if I get frustrated doing low cadence work, looking at my power meter, I just don't, I don't look at it. I just focus on the cadence, um, and my technique. And so give us the, the weekly, I'm assuming that's the Sunday done. Uh, no, I had a swim. And it was 4K and hour 15. And that was just a lot of, yeah, a warm up with some little sprints, not much to it. And then just some 50s and 200s, um, aerobic and technical focus. I did a lot with my snorkel on. So give me the totals. How many uh, hours swim, bike, run, and how many hours all up? Um, I did, what was that? That's, 24 hours total seems like more um 20, <laughs> 24 hours total um yeah and most of that was most of that was the bike um 10 hours biking five hours running five seven hours 20 swimming and then obviously there's other other stuff there like the strength and the yoga and that doesn't really come up in a separate thing here but um yeah and then obviously around that I've got I had a physio session a massage a remedial massage session and then um I do a lot of yeah body work that's kind of outside the training obviously but to keep my body in one piece thanks Eves, for that Ash that was that was awesome to take us through in such detail we don't really get that a lot in the triathlon world so appreciate that uh and appreciate the chat in general uh that was that was a great chat. 90 minutes we've been going now, but it went really quickly uh, because of, of how much detail you were giving and how how open you were. So appreciate that and I'm sure everyone listening, listening will appreciate that. Uh, and I, I think I speak on behalf of everyone. Can't wait to see you uh, at Singapore for the, the PTO or the T100 Asian Open there in, in mid-April. Um, will you be watching the, the Miami uh, T100 race from home or will you be going over there even though you're not racing? No, I'll be here in Australia. Um, I'll see what the time difference is. <laughs> if the time difference isn't optimal, I think I'll just catch up and watch the highlights later. But oh, I've like never missed a PTO race before. So yeah, I'm going to have a lot of, I'm going to be really jealous, I think. So you'll, you'll I'll see if I'll be able to watch up. it. <laughs> Surely you'll have to get up to watch it. You can't miss yeah. it. Well, there's only eight in a year. Yeah, I know. But like as an athlete, you know, you don't want to miss out. And then, you know, you think it's a good decision and then you, watch everyone else race and you get jealous it's, it's not that, it's not <laughs> yeah. that easy <laughs> and then you, you're jealous and you see everyone have good races and then you have a shit day of training because you're so tired and then yeah 
I get it. No, I won't be missing any sleep for it. You know, I can catch up and watch replays or highlights. I, I won't be sacrificing my sleep. You just got to stay off your phone so that like you can watch it without it being spoiled. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, I've got to get good sleep to be able to train. Are these, these are the women I have to race in Singapore. I've got to stay focused, you know. Do you, have you heard, do you know who's going to be racing Miami? Like, do you know who isn't racing? No, I don't know. I just saw something on Instagram because I was tagged in it. Um, but that's very, don't think that was. Um, Not official. Official information. It's Instagram <laughs> information. So it's yeah. probably fake. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome, Ash. Thanks so much for that chat. Uh, see you in Singapore. Can't wait. Good luck for the rest of the build. Uh, and yeah, we'll, uh, we can't wait to watch the, the, the season unfold for you. Thanks, Jack.